Welcome to Humus and Humans, a gardening podcast where we cross-pollinate science and stories. I'm Rachel Henley. And I'm Nicole Schumann. We are agriculture and natural resource extension agents with Virginia Cooperative Extension based in Central Virginia. This podcast is a joint production by Virginia Cooperative Extension and the Goochland Powhatan Master Gardeners. Hey, everybody. Um, Today with us, Rachel and I have Kathy McCarthy, who is one of our wonderful master gardeners, and she is going to be uh, discussing the Garden of Eden, how Virginia horticulture influenced the world in the 18th century, and how you can grow historic plants in your garden today. So we are super excited and very interested to know more about this topic, because I have to say that it is something that Rachel and I don't know anything about. We are very focused on new varieties and new plants, and we don't take a lot of time to really look backwards at, at what plants looked like in the past in, in Virginia gardening. So do you want to just tell us a little bit about why you got interested in this topic in the first place, Kathy? Sure. I agree with you. I think a lot of people look at new varieties as something that they're interested in, and I do as well, but there was a point where I was researching plants that were being used in the National Trust Gardens in Great Britain. A lot of people make pilgrimages to go see the Great National Trust Gardens uh, in England, and I couldn't do that, but I could look up online and see what plants they were using in these absolutely beautiful gardens. I knew that using common names, I have enough trouble with common names in the U.S. A friend will give me a plant, they'll say, okay, I'm giving you bluebells, and then the plant will die, and I will find out (laughs) that there are five different plants called bluebells, and the plant they gave me was a different bluebell, so I was uh, unfortunately not treating it correctly. So as I looked at the plants in the National Trust Gardens, I looked at the common names, and they were familiar. They were things like bluebells, funnily enough, uh, sweet spire, fringe tree, sweet bay, persimmon. And I thought, okay, I know these names. And I wasn't super surprised by that. I've read that 50% of the plants in these very famous gardens that charge a lot of money to go see them are actually American natives, right? So you pay thousands of dollars, you go to Great Britain, and you get to see American plants. But (laughs) anyway, so I wasn't super surprised that the common names were familiar, but I still wanted to check on the genus and epithet. Because I thought, okay, I want to make sure that I actually know that I'm looking at the correct plant. And when I did, there was something that was a little bit surprising, right? So I went back through the same list of plants, and it was uh, Mertensia virginica, Itea virginica, Chianansis virginicus, Magnolia virginiana. You started thinking, or I started thinking, why? You know, why? (laughs) Of all these ornamental plants, why are they so heavily named after Virginia? Because if you looked at the list of plants, they weren't necessarily only native to this area. So one of them was Quercus virginianus. That's live oak. And live oak is actually much more common south of here. If you looked at uh, Juniperus virginiana, so the eastern red cedar, That is native all up and down the East Coast, right? So that is not a Virginia plant necessarily. I mean, it does grow here, but I'm a history nerd. And as soon as I saw this 
incredible prevalence of Virginia in plant names, I wanted to know why. So that's what got me interested in this topic. That makes so much sense because as you were talking, Kathy, my brain started going to, oh my gosh, plants and history collide. I'm so excited to like be able to hear a little bit about history, but relate it back to plants. So tell us a little bit more about how that all evolved and what you found. As soon as I thought, okay, we have a history mystery, right? My undergrad uh, work was in history and I wanted to solve it. So what I found is, you know, start with simple theories. So sometimes people just overthink it, me included. And I thought, okay, if I'm hearing hoofbeats in central Virginia, I'm probably not going to see zebras. So Starting with simple theories, I knew that in the mid-18th century, Virginia had the largest population. If you stacked up the 13 colonies, Virginia had the most people in it. So maybe the most people equaled the most plants named after it. But then I started doing a little bit more digging. Really, Virginia's population was the largest, but Massachusetts and Maryland were right behind it, and Pennsylvania was right behind it. Massachusetts, about 2% of the population was enslaved. Pennsylvania, about 2% of the population was enslaved. But in Virginia, 44% of the population was enslaved. So if you think about botany, even though there were probably lots of enslaved people who were incredible horticulturalists, and Jefferson writes about the horticulturalists on his property who were enslaved, they probably weren't allowed to correspond with Linnaeus and with Europe. And so therefore, Virginia shouldn't have had the most plants named after it because Massachusetts and Pennsylvania had far larger populations of free people. So it wasn't population. And then I thought, okay, well, continue to keep that simple though. Don't, <laughs> don't say, okay, we've ruled out one simple theory, therefore, you know, it's, it's more complex than that. So then I thought, okay, well, maybe it's about quality, right? It's not quantity, maybe it's quality. Uh, so I started looking into 18th century botanists and who was the most famous and who had the most contact with Europe. And it turns out it was two uh, botanists that actually were from Pennsylvania. So John Bartram was the he was appointed royal botanist in 1765. There are a number of books written by Andrea Wolf where she goes through and describes how John Bartram kind of created a whole era of botany and corresponded with lots of very influential people in Europe. So it was really the Bartram era. And so that's Pennsylvania. Again, not Virginia. <laughs> so I had kind of killed out the quantity theory, and I had, you know, disproven the quality theory. So then I really dug in because I wanted to know why. And so digging in a little further, what, what did you come up with? What was at the bottom of that, uh, bottom of that barrel? Bottom of that well, right? Yeah. Yes. So where I landed after I kind of went through some primary source material and some secondary source material, where I landed was it's really about the three P's. I like when things rhyme, right? So I describe them as the three P's. It's a three-part perfect storm. And it's the plight of the military. It's profiteering or profit. And it's plant hunters sent by God, which is, in fact, a Blues Brothers reference. 
but <laughs> it's these three P's, right? And so, you know, you start out with the plight of the military. So you look at Great Britain and starting in the 1330s, they were at war, right? We tend to forget this. We tend to think about the British Empire as one big peaceful place, Minions. right? Yeah. And in the 1330s, that was the beginning of the Hundred Years' War. And then 1455 is the War of the Roses. 1566 is the Eighty Years' War. 1642, the English Civil War. 1688, the Nine Years' War. I think they just turned to, you know, using the length of the war because they couldn't come up with names for them anymore. Um, and then finally, 1701, the War of Spanish Succession. So different enemies, different reasons why they were at war. But for 300 years, they were just in turmoil. You know, England is an island, so naval power is vital. And if you're going to have a powerful navy, you need mass. You need really large trees to turn into mass. When you look at the timeline, after 300 years of deforesting England, they were actually pulling in lumber from Norway and Russia, which you don't really want to be dependent on other countries for your main military power. They weren't sure how to get out of it, right? So John Tredeskin is the royal gardener, right? He's the gardener for King Charles I. And he gets sent to the colonies to do some plant exploration and see what's there. So this is 1670s, early, early, right? So he comes over and as he explores, he finds poplar, uh, which we really think is tulip poplar. He, you know, just calls yeah. it a poplar, but red maples, black walnuts, black locusts. He finds six different kinds of oaks that he's not familiar with in England. And he brings these specimens back to Great Britain. And in Great Britain, about 20 years, along, they see the possibility. So John Evelyn, who's a very wealthy member of rural society, writes to Samuel Pepys at the Admiralty, and he says, have one of his captains bring back sweet gum, sassafras, persimmon, hickory, sumac, cedar of Virginia, crimson maple, bird's eye maple, and six kinds of oaks. And so you have very wealthy people instructing the military to transport plants. And this may seem like a small thing, but if you think about today, right? So you go online, you find the plant of your dreams and you want to have it shipped to you. And the plant is $30. And then you go to the shipping page. And as you check out, you identify that shipping is $45. <laughs> you think there is no way, right? So even today, transporting plants is super expensive. And there you have 1680s. There aren't that many ships going back and forth to the U.S. So, well, it wasn't the U.S. at the time, to the colonies. And so transportation is hugely expensive, and there's very limited space in these cargo holds. And because this was a military priority, and because military had the influence in the ships, these plants were coming back to Great Britain. And there's even a story about a captain, bless his heart, he'd finally been promoted to captain. He didn't have to sleep in the hold anymore. He has a nice warm cabin. And instead, they take big tubs of plants 
fill up the entire captain's cabin with plants and he's back in the hole sleeping on a cot, right? So, so they've taken priorities. So that's the first P is the power of the military. I mean, first of all, sleeping in a room full of plants, I don't think that would have bothered me at all. And I think there are a lot of people that really go for that aesthetic in their home decor these days. Um, but just something really caught my ear in what you were saying. So they asked for crimson maple and bird's eye maple. Yeah. Because those are maples I don't think I've ever heard of. And maybe it's my ignorance of trees. But do you know what those are? Well, I mean, part of the interesting part of historical horticulture is sort of that naming thing, right? So now we have Linnaeus' system. And in Linnaeus' system, you have a genus, a specific epithet, and that is unique to each plant. Uh, unfortunately, <laughs> in the 1680s, people just used common names. So each person might have a slightly different name for a plant. And you kind of have to trace it back through and Sometimes you can go to an herbarium, I think I'm saying that correctly, and look at samples, you know, that they've dried and saved for hundreds of years. And you can trace back through, oh, um, old man's beard is actually what we call fringe tree. But unfortunately, at that point in time, uh, there were some misunderstandings based off the different names of the plants. We believe, or I believe, that crimson maple was probably a red maple. That's so interesting. Well, Kathy, get us back on your peas, the prophet's piece. I'm like, okay, is the military now using this as a way to make their voyages cost-effective by the rich folks trying to pay for shipping? That's where my mind went. Tell us a little more. <laughs> yeah, sure. So the military is behind uh, bringing these plants over to, to Great Britain. But the second P, um, I, think you, I think you made the leap, Rachel. I think you made the connection, which is the second P is profits, right? So if you think what's unique about the Virginia colony is it is the Virginia company was chartered to create a profitable outlying colony for Great Britain. And so even as early as 1588, there's a gentleman named Thomas Harriet, who writes basically a sales brochure for the Virginia Colony, and it says, our purpose as to give our readers a general idea of what the country is and how you can profit from supporting it. <laughs> so you think about New York is a religious colony, right? It was founded by the Huguenots. Uh, Massachusetts, founded by the Puritans, again, a re religious colony. They're going for religious freedom. In Pennsylvania, you have the Quakers. But in Virginia, you have the almighty uh, British pound. So, um, again, the Virginia Company is chartered in April of 1606, and it's all about profits. That's the second P, because it really brings to the fore what could we do with this colony and what will this plant material do for us economically. I love that they uh, they had a brochure. It's like they were trying to sell timeshares and I don't know, some sort of like botanist's Disney World or something. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And they were, I mean, they were serious about it, right? So there's a, another um, statement from Robert Beverly, um, and you may have been to his home. It's on the other side of, of Richmond. It's on the Route 5. Um, and he wrote in 1705, it is said of New England that several plants will not grow there, 
I don't know of any English plant grain or fruit that miscarries in Virginia, but most of them better their kinds very much by being sowed or planted there. So not biased at all. <laughs> wow. Basically, Virginia was where you wanted to uh, to move to. So yeah, it was. It was a timeshare brochure. Absolutely. All right, so that gets us through two of the P's. So let's uh, let's go back to that Blues Brothers reference you had earlier. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so plant hunters sent by God. So the first two P's, you have the military supporting the transportation, and you have the shareholders of the Virginia Company in Great Britain wanting their profits. So that gets you a whole bunch of plants in England but it doesn't necessarily get you a whole bunch of plants named after Virginia. That kind of got me thinking about what's the third P, what's the linchpin or the third leg of the stool that gets them named after Virginia. And what happened was you have a group of people at the head of British society, very wealthy people, investors in the, in the um, Virginia company, one of which is a gentleman named Henry Compton. And you just don't get any more influential than Henry Compton, right? He's the Bishop of London. He's the son of the Earl of Northampton. He actually performed the coronation for William and Mary, right? So he anointed uh, the royal family uh, to become king and queen. And he gets to select all of the clergy that are going to be coming over to the colonies. He selects them and he assigns them to their different churches, although they were they had to build the church first. It was a tough job. But anyway, and he selects someone named John Bannister, Reverend John Bannister, to come over to Virginia because not only is he a man of God who's supposed to care for his flock, he also happens to be a botanist. So, so Henry Compton decides that uh, he can adequately bring back these profitable plants and identify which ones would be the best choice. And John Bannister comes back with a huge collection of plants. Unfortunately, well, I say he comes back. Unfortunately, he dies while he's botanizing. The plants come back and get stored in Oxford. And this is in 1736, Carl Linnaeus, who everyone knows, came up with the binomial system of taxonomy, right? He's the father of the binomial system. He comes from Sweden to England in 1736. And remember, he publishes his system in 1742, right? So it's right before he publishes his system. And he really, really needs the British aristocracy to invest in his system of taxonomy, because there are competing systems, right? We never remember Betamax because VHS, and you don't remember it anyway because you're too young. But there, are, yeah, when there speaking, are speaking of history, <laughs> but when there are competing technologies, there are winners and losers, right? And we remember the winners and we don't remember the losers. So at the time that Linnaeus was coming up with this binomial uh, system, there were competing systems and he knew that and he knew the only way that his system was going to become most prevalent was if he had the investors to put the money into publishing it and also promoting it. And so he comes to England in 1736 and he truly wants to get Henry Compton and the other members of the Royal Society 
to back him and invest in his system. And he knows that they have put together this huge collection. It's at Oxford. And so he actually goes to Oxford, reviews the collection of plants, and dedicates a book to the librarian of the system as just the first step in wooing these investors. He eventually looks at a Virginia catalog that has been sent to his uh, colleague, John Grodnovius, who's also in Sweden, and he sees the connection between this catalog that's come from John Clayton from Virginia and Henry Compton and these other wealthy British uh, Virginia company investors. And he decides that it would probably be a good idea <laughs> if he named many of these plants after Virginia. And so those are the three Ps, right? So you had the military bringing these plants over, you had this profit objective, and you had these plant hunters sent by God that brought this collection uh, back to Great Britain and became a opportunity for Carl Linnaeus to, to gather support. So I, I thought it was fascinating. And when I went back and looked at these plants, it suddenly made sense to me where these epithets were coming from. That makes complete sense. You've like cleared the picture, the big mystery. I think that was so fascinating how it led you down that rabbit hole to figure this all out. And then it makes so much sense. Stars aligned, things had to happen for others to move forward. And and it just so happened that we're in Virginia. And so we get to reap that (laughs) now. Yeah, it's fun. And fundamentally, uh, it is a very simple explanatory theory at the end of the day. And a lot of times we look back on history and we think about it being sort of noble or, I don't know, exciting, different, somehow romanticized. But at the end of the day, this really boiled down to, you know, the profit motive and also like self-promotion and flattery and very, very sort of basic things that we see alive and at work in human nature today so that's um sort of a very interesting through line to have found yeah yeah absolutely notice too that so much goes back to virginia and why 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 virginia (laughs) well speaking of this history and all that you've uncovered i know you then started to learn more and dive into some of the plants um, that we do have here. So do you want to talk about any of the historic Virginia plants that maybe folks might have on their property or would like to put on their property in their gardens or landscape? Sure. The neat part about knowing the history behind these plants is, at least for me, it gave me a lot greater appreciation for plants that I pass by all the time and how sometimes familiarity breeds contempt right? So you can pay thousands and thousands of dollars, go to these National Trust Gardens, and you're going to see some of the same plants that you have here. And here, they're so easy to take care of, right? They're native plants. They're so happy here. Versus in England, they're working so hard. You know, they have 10 and 15 gardeners, you know, taking care of these exotics. So it just gave me a much greater appreciation for our native plants. You know, an example would be uh, Mertensia virginica, the the infamous bluebells. This is the the bluebells that are named after Virginia. It's a herbaceous perennial. It's terrific in shade. Uh, It doesn't mind walnuts. 
and it's a spring ephemeral. So when, you know, ground bees, so 70% of our native bees are ground dwellers, the females, the queens come out really early in the spring, right? So because they need to start setting up their nest for the season's offspring. And when they come out early in the spring, you know, early April, uh, there's not a lot of things in bloom. These uh, Virginia bluebells are a great source of pollen and nectar for them. So you get this beautiful flower in your garden and you're helping pollinators. So that that's one that I would highly recommend. I mean, there's so many. <laughs> uh, for a shrub, uh, one to think about is Itaea virginica. Uh, some people call it Virginia sweet spire, but it's a great shrub. It's deciduous. Um, it survives zones five to nine. So anywhere in Virginia, it's going to be pretty happy. And it's actually nice for like a home landscape. Some shrubs get very, very large. Um, this one is three to five feet tall, three to five feet wide. And it has these beautiful blooms. Um, midsummer, they're showy and fragrant, tons of butterflies. Um, so that's one. And I'll do one more. I like them all. But um, there's one, Chiananthus uh, virginicus, and some people call that fringe tree. There's also a Chinese fringe tree, so just be careful because uh, the native fringe tree is the one that you want. And it is a great replacement for Bradford pears. So Bradford pears have been found to be incredibly invasive, and they're just, like, not great trees. They shatter. Their branching system is kind of poor. Um, and they kind of smell. But anyway, years ago, lots and lots of people planted bread for pears. We just didn't know any better. Now, um, we're trying to get those out of the landscape. And uh, Clemson, I think, has come up with something interesting. They have a bread for pear bounty. If you take, <laughs> this is a serious thing. If you take a selfie of yourself having destroyed a bread for pear, uh, you have to show it's chopped down or the root system's pulled up. They will deliver to you a brand new tree. Oh, um, so wow. it's called the Bradford the Bradford Pear Bounty. There you go. But anyway, um, I don't know if it's this year, but in prior years, they have sometimes given this fringe tree as your Chinanthus virginicus as your replacement tree because it blooms in the spring. It's a small tree, twelve to twenty feet high, twelve to twenty feet wide. You may have to limit up. It may. Um, it may have more than one trunk, but if you limit up, it becomes a small tree. It's a great replacement. It's beautiful. It really is. It's one of my um, one of my grandmother's favorite trees. Although she's from uh, Alabama, so she calls it a Grancy Graybeard, which I just love. Just coming, just coming right back to that whole nomenclature thing, the the Grancy Graybeard. So I'm I'm a huge fan of that tree. That's a great name. I love that. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Kathy. This was a fascinating discussion and really um, really gives me a greater appreciation when I go out in the garden and, and think about the, the plants that we have and, and the stories behind them. I would totally agree. And just knowing that by luck, we got so many plants, we have so many plants named after Virginia, but there is a lot of truth, I think, too, to that we we are in a fruitful area and with our our um, seasons, the temperature, the amount of 
um, precipitation in our, our productive soils that we can have um, so many different varieties. So thank you so much for sharing that awesome history. And I'm excited too to go and try to create more habitat for our wonderful Virginia plants. Absolutely. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening. If you have a gardening question that you want to hear answered on our show, let us know. Contact information for both the Goochland and Powhatan Extension offices and GPMGA can be found in our show notes. Don't live in the area? You probably have an extension office or a master gardener chapter near you. Virginia Cooperative Extension programs and employment are open to all, regardless of age, color, disability, gender, gender identity, gender expression, national origin, political affiliation, race, religion, sexual orientation, genetic information, veteran status, or any other basis protected by law. An equal opportunity affirmative action employer. Issued in furtherance of cooperative extension work, Virginia Polytechnic Institute and State University, Virginia State University, and the U.S. Department of Agriculture cooperating. Edwin J. Jones, Director, Virginia Cooperative Extension, Virginia Tech, Blacksburg, and M. Ray McKinney, Administrator, 1890 Extension Program, Virginia State University.